Good morning. I'm Sana, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Monday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. November is National Adoption Month. This initiative first began as National Adoption Week in 1984, as proclaimed by President Reagan. And then in 1995, President Clinton proclaimed the first National Adoption Month. This is an initiative of the Children's Bureau, and it seeks to increase national awareness of adoption issues, bring attention to the need for adoptive families for teens in the U.S. foster care system, and emphasize the value of youth engagement. Over the past several years, many adoptees have reframed November as National Adoptee Awareness Month to recenter adoptee voices, experience, and expertise. Today, I'm excited to welcome Patrick Armstrong to talk more about National Adoptee Awareness Month. Patrick is a transracial Korean-American adoptee, a podcaster, speaker, and advocate. He is one of the co-hosts of The Janshi Show, a podcast that explores and celebrates the experiences and stories of Korean adoptees everywhere. He is also a producer of Dear Asian Americans, a podcast for and by Asian Americans, focusing on authentic storytelling rooted in origin, identity, and legacy. He also helped start the Asian Adoptees of Indiana, a group dedicated to creating a safe, engaging community for all Asian adoptees who need it. Good morning, Patrick. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Sana. Good morning to you and all your listeners as well. Excited to be here. Yes, I am so happy to have you here with us this morning. Uh, Your personal story is so interesting, but Equally important is all the advocacy that you do for Asian adoptee communities, but also Asian Americans more broadly. And I thought, what a perfect way to close out National Adoptee Awareness Month than to have you and all of your expertise come join us on the show and, you know, help us think through what does it mean to have, you know, a month that is about awareness for adoption, but also historically has really not centered adoptees at all and thinking about how adoptees like yourself are really part of this movement to recenter adoptees and and show the importance and kind of what changes when we recenter the people who really are very much impacted um, through adoption. Yeah, I'm really excited to have that conversation. You know, hearing you give that intro, talking about the history of the month and the week, it really made me think about how it was centered around the process or the act of adoption. Like, that's where the emphasis was to celebrate these things, because it's different than like a typical heritage month, I would think. Because when you think of Heritage Month, you think of celebrating a people, a culture. But with adoption, it's the act of adoption and what's happening because of that. Um, And I think... I'm just very grateful and privileged to be a part of a group of people who are trying to reclaim that as adoptees, as let's take this and center it on the people who are most impacted by what goes on with adoption. So really excited to join you for this conversation. You know, we've talked a lot about it behind the scenes, but excited to be able to get into it more with you here. Yes, absolutely. And thank you so much for for that kind of explanation, right? Adoption awareness month or adoption month is focused on that 
act, that process and takes the people out of it. And there are so many people implicated in this process, sometimes, um, you know, willingly and sometimes against their own will and having this month that just simply celebrates the process without thinking through everything else that is implicated in it um, does some damage. And that's why I'm happy that adoptees are saying, well, wait a minute, you know, hold on, let's think of, think through what it means to be adopted and not just as this one, you know, celebratory loving act, but also the many acts and inactions that happen along the way. Exactly. I think when you see people talking about it and the messages that come out from agencies and organizations promoting adoption month, it just, when you heat, when you look at the comments, when you see people from our community who are speaking out, sharing their experience, it really doesn't line up with the messaging that comes out across for all of these things for this month. And so I think it's, you know, it's no more important than now to be able to center our voices and to be able to make our voice heard in this conversation with a lot of things that are going on, specifically like uh, Roe v. Wade, um, with that being overturned, you know, we see adoptees and adoption being pulled in as a centerpiece for arguments for or against abortion and abortion rights. Um, So I think it's important to really think about those people. And, you know, you talked about the advocacy work that I do when it comes to uplifting voices. The important thing to me is centering the voices of people who are the most marginalized in our community. So while I might be, you know, part of this community, want my voice to be heard, I do know that there are people that have to go through or have went through more significant trauma than myself who deserve to have their story heard and who typically aren't. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great point when we talk about how we view adoption or how we even think about adoptees and whose voices or whose stories are celebrated as part of that act of adoption or who are seen as adoptees worth knowing or whose stories have value, but value to whom and for what reasons. And so I think that's very important as we think about you know, reframing this from simply acknowledging the act of adoption to really understanding the many different people who are involved. And of course, today, you know, we're talking about adoptees in particular, since both of us are adoptees, <laughs> but we can also think about birth families or, or, or first families, communities of origin, countries of origin um, as well. Exactly. Yes. So I know you mentioned um, a little bit about the advocacy that you do, and I I talked a little bit or mentioned a few things in your introduction, um, but let's talk about it more in depth. So one thing that I know that you're very involved in is advocacy around the Adoptee Citizenship Act. And could you just talk a little bit about what that is for our listeners who may not be familiar Absolutely. So the Adoptee Citizenship Act is a piece of legislation that's currently um, being or that's already been introduced in the House and Senate uh, in the U.S. Congress. And it specifically is meant to close a loophole in previously passed legislation, uh, the Child Citizenship Act of 2000, which granted uh, or conferred automatic citizenship to any person adopted internationally as long as they were under the age of 18 at the time of the enactment, which was February 27th of 2001. Um, While this was really good for people who were looking to be adopted internationally or people who were looking to adopt internationally, uh, it did leave out anyone, any adoptee who was over the age of 18. And Mm -hmm. so 
not only did that leave them without citizenship, it left them subject to the worst outcomes that you can have when you don't have citizenship um, from not only not being able to vote, but uh, losing out on health care access, losing out on educational opportunities. And if something were to go wrong, you could potentially be deported back to your country of origin where you have no connection to. And so the Adoptee Citizenship Act is looking to close that loophole. And this particular issue was one of the first ones that I became aware of when I started my own journey of unpacking my identity and understanding what it means to be an Asian American adoptee specifically. And so <clears throat> that's a, a little bit of background on the Adoptee Citizenship Act. And we can talk a little bit more about how I came to that as well, if you'd like. Yes, absolutely. Well, first, thank you so much for giving us an overview of the Adoptee Citizenship Act. I think what a lot of people are unaware of is the process as much as adoption. You know, we have this whole month about adoption or to try to raise awareness about adoption and oftentimes thinking about domestic adoption. Mm. Um, people aren't really aware of the intricacies of what it means to create an international, a global family. And right. so thinking through this issue of citizenship is extremely important. As you mentioned, there are adoptees who are now adults who don't have U.S. citizenship, yet they grew up here. They're raised um, by U.S. citizen families, adopted legally into the U.S., but now are legally not citizens and yet and also oftentimes legally not citizens of their country of origin either. Yep. Um, so stuck in, you know, political limbo. Um, and so you mentioned that legislation is currently making its way um, through the political process. Are there still things that need to be done? Are there things that our listeners can do um, in support of the Adoptee Citizenship Act? Absolutely. So this current version is the farthest along that it's ever gotten in the U.S. Uh, Congress. And so in February of this year, it was passed as an amendment to a larger bill, which was the first time it's made it through either chamber um, as any form of legislation. Um, and right now we're waiting for the Senate to make that same pass. Mm -hmm. And so unfortunately, <clears throat> the race is against time because after this session is up, we will have to start the process all over again. Congress runs for two sessions, so two years, essentially, and you have only that time to get legislation moved forward. So the best thing that anybody can do right now is to reach out to their senators, specifically in their states, respectively, and just ask that or just let them know that you, one, support this legislation and let them know that you would love to see that passed here before the end of the calendar year. And you can go to organizations like Adoptees for Justice or the uh, Adoptee or the Alliance for Adoptee Citizenship to find out exactly how you can contact them. They make it really easy through their websites to do calls, emails, and potentially meet in person. Mm, excellent. Thank you so much uh, for sharing that. Now, what are the, could you talk about the potential stumbling blocks for getting this legislation passed? Because I know you mentioned this is the farthest along that this piece of legislation has made it so far. Um, what are some of the reasons why folks may not be in support of this bill? So the biggest there, I'll say there's two reasons. There's one, one's generally that People don't want legislation like something like this to be attached as an amendment to a bill that may be not be relevant to what's mm -hmm. going on. And that's really how 
we've been or a lot of attempts have been made to get this legislation through because the larger issue is that this is still seen as an issue of immigration and it Mm -hmm. falls under the umbrella of immigration. And regardless of where you stand on that issue in Congress, there are sides that are picked on how senators and how uh, Congress members want to handle that. And unfortunately, for some people, it's a non-starter. Um, especially if a bill is introduced by an opposing party, it's really difficult to work around that. So what we have to do and what we can do is, again, just come together as a coalition of people, as a coalition of organizations, and let these senators know that this is something that's more important than just um, partisan politics, I should say. But Mm -hmm. more specifically, this isn't an immigration issue. It's a humanity issue. And at the end of the day, we are not trying to change immigration law for other groups at the moment. You know, what we're trying to do is confer citizenship onto the tens of thousands of people who we know don't currently have it because of a loophole that was passed in 2000. So Mm -hmm. it's simply an ask of closing that loophole. But unfortunately, it's always been seen as this issue of immigration, which opens up a whole other different uh, set of doors. Mm-hmm. Yes, I ask because when we think about adoptees, oftentimes the lens in which we have these conversations are very limited. Um, and in the case of the Adoptee Citizenship Act, we see what happens when the lens in which we think about adoptees bumps up against the lens in which we think about immigration. And so you have kind of these competing ideas that are making it difficult to get a law passed that would protect people who should have had mm-hmm. those protections in, you know, in the first place place. Exactly. Now, you mentioned um, that this was one of the first adoptee issues that you started to get involved in. So could you talk a little bit about how you got involved or maybe how you even learned about the issue of uh, undocumented adoptees? Yeah, so I got involved. Well, I first started to learn about the issue as I was, again, starting my own personal journey of unpacking my identity. And this was in the summer and early fall of 2020. I was I was about to say 2000 and tw- <laughs> of 2020. Um, and I was uh, recommended a series of books to read. And the first book that I read was called Adopted Territory. And that's by Elena Kim. And she is not... Um, an adoptee herself, but she's a Korean American scholar and she kind of integrated herself into the community and and the way that someone who is not of that community can and really provided what I consider to be a seminal text on the uh, Korean adoptee experience specifically. And one of those, one of the things that one of the facets of that experience is the undocumented experience. And so this is the first time that I had heard of this. And this uh, came along with Adam Krapser's story. The first time I had heard his name, um, someone whose story really is at the forefront of these, of this issue specifically. And, you know, just continuing to read books like that books, like invisible Asians, um, uh, that book really, you know, brought some of those narratives and, and, and those uh, stories to light for me as well. Just made me think that, I had never heard of this. And it made me think about my own past with citizenship and not recognizing that I'd ever just not thought about it. But Mm -hmm. when I was younger, uh, I went to go get my driver's permit and the people at the, when I was, when I was 15, went with my mom and the people at the BMV said, you can't get this because your documents aren't real. They're fake. 
What? And so, yeah, and <clears throat> it wasn't until I started to learn about this issue that this memory was jogged in my mind. And I'd always remembered it, but I never thought about it in this context. And after four hours at the BMV, we walked out. We had the 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 permit, mm -hmm. but we also left with this like sense of, oh, something's not right here. Mm -hmm. But I was a kid. You know, you move past it. You're able to start driving and stuff. You, you just move past it. But I realized, you know, as I was reading about undocumented adoptees and this issue, I was like, oh, this really does like this leaves a mark in a really bad way and it's so easy to find out that you don't have this way later in life you can still make it through certain milestones and not really realize that this is what you have and it made me realize how much i had taken for granted as a person with the privilege of citizenship and so like that memory combined with everything that i was learning really pushed me to want to start advocating in whatever way and the only way i really knew how to do that was to create slides on instagram and start sharing posts and information about it because i had never heard of this issue even though i had had a direct run-in um with it on the outside and in my own personal life and so i was just like okay we gotta i want to share i want to be able to share these stories and you know let people know that there's oh there's solutions in place but we we have work to do mm -hmm. so that's kind of how i got started on that Wow. Okay. So, so many questions here. So first, um, was it true, in fact, that you did not have citizenship or that the documents that you had that day weren't, you know, correct or true documents that you needed? It was not. So ends up the, the excuse me, the, my birth certificate that we had, the copy that we had from the state house, um, and it had Indiana written on it, but Indiana had been typewriter X'd over and then they put South Korea over the top of it. Uh -huh. And so they felt like they, the people at the BMV were just doing their job, but they mm -hmm. were like, this isn't real. And so it would took going back and forth with the state house, trying to get a hold of somebody who could verify this document that yes, in fact, this was a real thing. Mm -hmm. So we were, so they had, my parents had done everything that they needed to do. Um, but you know, just in that moment, it was like, wait a second. Wow. And that is so, I mean, thinking now in the 2022 lens, you know, it's very scary because a simple clerical error, we have seen very real examples of where it isn't so easily resolved or, oh. and it can lead to very dire consequences. And so, you know, thinking as a young person where you're like, as long as I can get my permit, it really doesn't matter. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, but of course, there could, there could have been a lot of different ways that that could have played out. Um, and we see that when it comes to, you know, civil servants, right? If you have someone who is kind of feels, um, you know, good about the situation or who can, you know, move the process along, then you don't have any problems. But if you don't have someone who's willing to maybe make an extra phone call or to go back through some old records, then, you know, you're at the mercy of who's ever making those decisions in the moment. Exactly. They could have sent us away too and then we would have been dealing with that on our own trying to figure out what was going on you know um and you're absolutely right like the context of timing like back then this was just kind of a, a non-issue now you know especially after 2016 like that's a that's grounds for detention i would assume just like any documentation that even what had the air of being false you know like you said you don't know the outcomes but they're almost assuredly worse now than they were then which again lends itself to like 
me walking out of that building having being none the wiser not thinking oh i should explore this we should we should uh figure out why this happened you know we just i just went along with my life Mm -hmm, absolutely and i think it also brings up this idea of for adoptees and in this case um adoptees who are adopted from another country you know we often don't think of ourselves as immigrants that's not a very salient mm. identity we're usually not growing up in an immigrant ethnic immigrant community so that isn't how we see ourselves so even when we're maybe faced with this example of a question of citizenship we don't see it through that same lens um because we're like oh wait no this doesn't affect me or it shouldn't affect me or it shouldn't have to deal with these types of questions in the same way that if we had a stronger immigrant identity, we might be thinking through this in a different way. Exactly. Well, like for myself, growing up in a predominantly white community, you know, I identified as white. I did not identify as Asian or Korean or think of myself in that way. And it was only be in situations like this where you get that stark reminder. And for some people, it like will make you go, OK, this is me and lean into that. And for some people, it'll have the opposite effect. And I was in that other group. You know, I was just like, oh, this doesn't make me like myself. Like, let me just keep being this other person so mm -hmm. I can make it through this. Like, I don't want to deal with all of this extra that's going on, you know, which is really harmful at the end of the day. I, I'm saying it with like a smile in my voice because it's like, you know, you're looking back and unpacking these things. But, you know, it was it truly very harmful to have and live in that mindset for so long. And it makes me laugh now just to think about or laugh in a sad way, I guess, just to think about having to operate that way and laughing proudly because I've come so far from that moment to like not think about myself anymore that way. Mm -hmm. I think you bring up an important point when we think about you know, Adoptee Awareness Month, right? Mm. And not just thinking about, oh, what are different parts of the adoption process that we might be thinking about differently or learning about through this month, but also what are the different processes that adoptees themselves encounter as they're growing up um, as adoptees and sometimes being reminded of their adoptedness on a right. daily basis, um, sometimes not, um, but for in particular transracial adoptees, that is something that you are thinking through maybe on a daily basis, if not consciously, subconsciously. Um, and that is one of the, the issues or experiences that National Adoptee Awareness Month, I think, really brings to the forefront. Absolutely. And I mean, that's the other side of my advocacy. You know, for undocumented adoptees, it's a lot about not just about changing the system and passing laws that'll give them the opportunity to have the right that they should already have, but it's about uplifting these stories and these voices of people who clearly have been pushed to the margins and who aren't being heard, which if they were, we wouldn't be having this issue. We wouldn't be fighting to get them not just citizenship, but a pathway to it. Like, I think that's the other thing about the legislation. Like, it provides the pathway, it opens the door, but it doesn't just hand them the, the, the certificate of citizenship, you know, and there's still things in that process that can be cleaned up. But um, to my larger point, like, for me, from an advocate standpoint, and what I do with the podcast and what I do helping on Dear Asian Americans, it is really about uplifting these voices and making sure that we are taking up the space that we've not been allowed to take up mm -hmm. and at the end of the day i do that because my own experience while would be bucketed in the positive adoption experience label like i still struggled with a lot of stuff that i couldn't articulate 
And honestly, at the end of the day, I suffered significant racial trauma because I literally went about the process of negating that of myself and um, forgetting it, putting it aside, suppressing it as much as possible because I didn't realize this was what I was doing, but that was the only way for me at the time to survive what I didn't understand. And what I didn't understand was why I was so different. I understood I was adopted. I understood that I was different in a way, but I never really truly understood why. And because of that, because I couldn't answer why for myself, I, instead of seeking out the knowledge, um, I chose to withdraw and to not think about myself that way. And I did that for 30 years. And so when it comes to reaching out and building and facilitating community and then encouraging empowering people to use their own voices it comes from that place of i don't want other people to suffer in that same way even when it, on the outside it looks like they're having a great time you know mm -hmm. this i'm everything's fine i'm fine it's like that's kind of like my mantra still but like i feel like i say it now with actual truth when before it was the mask you mm -hmm. know it was the it was the facade that i put on for people to think that everything was fine when in reality it wasn't Wow. Thanks so much for sharing that. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about why adoptees might feel this need to have this facade and you talk about it as a survival mechanism. Um, but we'll get to that right after this break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and you're here on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm talking with Patrick Armstrong. He's a transracial Korean adoptee, podcaster, speaker, and advocate. Um, November is National Adoption Month, which adoptees have been reframing as National Adoptee Awareness Month. And so Patrick and I have been chatting a little bit about some of his work and advocacy around adoption-specific issues. And before the break, Patrick, you were talking about how, you know, you spent 30 years of your life, you know, trying to convince yourself and those around you that everything was fine when <laughs> everything wasn't fine. Um, but I think it ties into the way we talk about adoption as this very loving act, as, you know, a very celebratory moment, as if it's just the act of adoption. And then the end, like someone is adopted, <laughs> there's a family, great, but there's a lot that's happening um, for an adopted person. And particularly right. um, as an international adoptee, particularly as a transracial adoptee. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about maybe some of the reasons why you felt like everything had to be fine and that you had to put on that face of like, it's fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I was thinking about this over the break. And I think that one of the things, especially for transracial adoptees, that we do is not only are we, if we grow up in predominantly white communities, not only are we internalizing whiteness and internalizing racism against ourselves, we internalize blame. Mm. I think a lot of ways, because this whole narrative around adoption that our adopted parents are fed, that is fed to the general society is that adoption is love. It is good. It's an act of saving or rescuing of a child. You know, it's framed in this really positive rainbow, like, narrative and, and 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 yeah just overall sunny disposition um when we talk about adoption and so that gets transferred to us 
And then as adoptees, we grow up thinking that we have to be or believing even that we have to be grateful for that. So when things go wrong or something feels off and we try and talk about that. So for me, it was like if I experienced an aggression, like a racial aggression, and I would maybe laugh it off, but I would go to my parents or go to an authority figure and say, hey, this just happened. I would be met with well, you probably heard that wrong or they were just joking or you needed to toughen up. You know, I heard that one a lot. And when you hear that over and over again, when that's the answer to you trying to like understand, oh, this isn't, I don't think this is right, but you're told that, no, you are the one that is wrong. I I think it's very easy to internalize that. And then, so for someone like myself who went then and took another 20, 30 years to come to this realization that, oh, I was doing that and that's not right. Um, it was very easy to me, easy for me whenever something was going wrong in a relationship, at work, at school, whatever the case was to go, oh, that's my fault. Like, what am I doing wrong? How am I not making this work? And so it's because of that. And again, I want to caveat by saying that I won't say that all adoptive parents are doing this intentionally. I don't necessarily think most people are probably doing it intentionally, but it's that's the insidiousness of a, of the narrative of why we can't just always lean on the positive all the time because that sets, seeps into our mindsets and then we pass that mindset down. And then that's how trauma becomes generational and intergenerational is because we are, we believe that this is the way that it's supposed to happen And I'm speaking about this specifically in the context of adoption, because that's how we as adoptees then struggle, can struggle to get out from underneath that. That's a lot of weight and a lot of things to carry on your own. And especially if you're in in isolation where you don't know other adoptees or you don't know any of anyone else of not even of your own ethnicity, but any other ethnicity, you don't have anyone to talk to. And so you don't have these conversations. And so you, again, internalize again. And I wrote about this recently, but it's just like 30, 40, 50 years. Like how much trauma does that build up over time and how difficult can that, how can you even imagine how difficult that would be to work your way back from that? You know, I'm really lucky to do it at 30 and I've met plenty of other adoptees who are doing it at 40 and 50. And it's Mm -hmm. like power to you. (laughs) Like I want to support you. I need people to hear your voice because that's, you know, it's so much more that we're working back from. And so I don't know if I answered your question, but I think that's one of the things that I think about a lot is like we internalize blame. And so that's what makes it so much more difficult, or at least did for me to be able to get out from under that is because I was blaming myself. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Again, you know, you even in what you were describing, you know, I'm thinking about so many connections to how we think about adoption, right, which is really Mm -hmm. part of it, you know, we here we are, this is National Adoption Month, started in the 80s, right, as a National Adoption Week. So just thinking about these decades of messaging around adoption, um, around the act of adoption, around who is adoptable, who are fit parents to adopt, right? All of these different mm-hmm. messages. And that's just even if we take, you know, National Adoption Week or National Adoption Month as the starting point, which of course right. adoption has been, you know, for many, many decades before the 80s. Um, but just thinking about how we how we 
perceive adoption culturally, the stories, whether it's Disney fairy tales or, you know, superhero stories around orphans or adoptees or, you know, families and how that then shapes, you know, what we're thinking about ourselves or what other people are thinking about us. Uh, And the second thing that I, I really heard as you were talking was thinking about community, which, you know, you're very much part of building adoptee communities, but thinking for adoptees as they're growing up and parents are the ones who are shaping the communities that their children adopted or not are a part of. So what does that look like in the intentionality that is needed around creating community for adoptees or at least exposing adoptees to communities that are in existence and really facilitating that. Um, And that might not be top of mind for someone who is not adopted, right? Who is just thinking about how can I raise this, this kid? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, I'm not thinking about those other components a lot, you know, like you, you, I would say that I'm not a parent yet, so I don't know, but I would say you 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 have a baby and I feel like all of that goes away. Like all of that, the stuff that you should be thinking about, you kind of just don't think about it anymore. But again, and this goes to like the infantilization of adoptees, like we grow up from that point. So we are going to have to have those conversations. Yes, we are. And that's why I'm glad we're having this conversation today. Um, You talked about infantilization. And let's just stop here for a minute because adoptees, again, if we think about the messaging, broader cultural messaging, adoptees are children. Adoptees aren't adults who maybe don't have citizenship and adoptees aren't adults who are are married and have, you know, children or families of their own. Um, So could you talk a little bit more about infantilization? as it applies to adoptees and even what we can do to combat um, this misperception around who adoptees are. Sure. So I think the biggest thing with the infantilization is that it gets us away from, it gets us away from asking the right question. So I think when infantilization for adoption comes into play is like, it, it is in that narrative, you know, and again, what makes a better poster ad than a child you know Mm -hmm. and so uh, we have to remember that adoption is an industry it's an industry that happens like adoption is not the child the child Mm -hmm. is the adoptee and so we when we think about the infantilization gets us away from asking the right question we're asking what is it what is the process of adoption what is what's happening in adoption and that's where the messaging is framed because Mm -hmm. when we ask the when, when it's framed that way and we're asking what we're not asking why. And so I think that for me, the infantilization gets us away. It's kind of strategic and 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 done intentionally because it keeps us from asking, why are we, why are, why would we ask anyone to give up their child in the first place? Why are people having to make that decision? And I'm not saying that all adoption shouldn't happen for whatever reason. I'm There are certain specific situations where that can happen. And it probably might be in the best interest of the child. But at the end of the day, the the majority of adoptions are not happening because of that. Mm-hmm. And we have to ask why that is. We have to ask how we're ending up at this at, at this uh, situation, at this crossroads and why there's a why there's two decisions in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so infantilization keeps us from asking that question. And some of the ways that we push back against that one is just awareness. It's having that conversation and talking about it. But two, it's after having those conversations, 
like making sure that we're having them and pushing back on those people in power, the people with the privilege who can make change and working to make those changes. Now, I realize driving systemic change is is really difficult. And it's not it's easy to say into the microphone. It is much different and much more difficult to actually achieve in reality. And even at that point, you know, systems are corruptible. So you have to continue to check yourself and continue to check in. But unfortunately, the system of adoption and the way that this is run has went unchecked. Mm -hmm. And so with unchecked infantilization, we now again are subject to this narrative and we're asking what we are not asking why. And so if we can start to get to the root of why and we can solve and we can solve the systemic issues, then, you know, we can actually start to see those changes. And the biggest ways that we can do that now are, again, learning, awareness, having these conversations. Um, and then if if at all possible, finding ways into your local governments, finding ways if if it if it sits right with you, making those pushes into places that we can start to try and change those laws, make those changes on, on whatever it is that we can do. And so that's a lot longer and I don't have the specifics on how we do go about doing that. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that's, you know, those are things that we can do right now. And, and, and at the very least we can be having a conversation like this. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for that. I love that reframing of, you know, moving away from just thinking about the process of adoption and how to make that process smoother um, or how to even bring awareness to that process itself, but rather asking the question, you know, why does this process exist in the first place? To whose benefit? And is there a better way that we can be thinking about families and family permanency? Because that is the language that we hear a lot around adoption, right? Thinking about forever mm -hmm. families and, and family family um, permanency, but adoptable children have families and there is there are ways that we could be thinking about permanency in their first families um, instead of just automatically thinking about adoption as the solution um, to a variety of different problems. Well, I think that's the other thing with infantilization. Like we look at it, especially in the foster care system, like these are all children that are, like you said, their cases are being worked to get them permanent placements, but not to figure out and support their families who, if they were supported and helped in the ways that they needed in whatever way that looks like, whether it's wealth or education or health, you know, all these different areas, if we're, if we're supporting them, then we're not thinking about, oh, there's not enough families to adopt these people or the other way around, you know, but when the infantilization makes it so we aren't thinking about those parents, we're only thinking about these kids. And even then for foster care, especially when you hit a certain age, you're not a kid anymore. Mm -hmm. You're not a child anymore. And so even at that point, you're starting to slip outside of the consciousness of the people who are supposedly working within these systems. And you're starting to and you're slipping out of the consciousness of the general public who is thinking about what is adoption? What does it mean to be a child like they move and infantilization moves our gaze back to this one small set of people from infants to like five years old, probably is when they when people are really wanting to make adoption or thinking about adoption. And mm -hmm. so if we are, you know, and again, this goes to. Like you talk about family permanency and family making like that's my whole thing 
around the narrative adoption as well is we need to stop thinking about adoption as family making and thinking about it where it truly is, is family separation. And again, that goes to the question of why, like it goes back to why are we separating families and why can't we keep these families together? But we're not for the, the narrative doesn't have us ask those questions. It just, again, like you said, makes us look back at the process and we look at the process. How do we make this process better? What's wrong with the process? Well, there's a lot wrong with the process, but that doesn't matter. We can't, we can do whatever we want to the process, but we don't ask why we don't answer these questions. We're still going to have the same issues on the other end of the process. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It made me think about, um, national, uh, adoption day, which I actually wasn't aware of as a, a thing that existed. Um, but it really was, um, created to help the process. And so in 2000, um, a coalition of national partners founded National Adoption Day, which is observed the Saturday before Thanksgiving, but it really stemmed from an issue of having um, family courts open an additional day to make the process of adoption smoother. And so, you know, to your point, here we are thinking of solutions to a quote unquote problem very far down the chain when we could be thinking about, okay, how do we preserve families in the first place so that we don't necessarily have to just be keeping courts open an extra day during the week right. to facilitate a process? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I, I can't even make it make sense because at the end of the day, like the, the metaphor I was just thinking of is that it's kind of like a river being dammed. And so the mm -hmm. dams are the process and the solutions that they come up with the process. But at the end of the day, you have this wellspring of the issues that stem for or particularly for adoptees, but also first families from the initial separation due to adoption or whatever the system and how that's feeding in. And so instead of figuring out how do we calm the waters mm -hmm. here, how do we fix what's making uh, making the river flood? We're just trying to patchwork it all the way down because we want because more flood means more buildings more dams more funding for this that and the other it mm -hmm. doesn't but if we stop that then that goes away and so that's where that that's where that process i think really is damaging and where you can really start to see why it disconnects and you can see that there's still leaks in the process and it's never going to be completely fixed because we're not focusing on the initial problem the mm -hmm. the actual problem and what and it's not necessarily even a problem it's just the systemic issues that have always plagued our most marginalized people. Yes. Let's take another quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and this is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm here with Patrick Armstrong, a transracial Korean American adoptee, podcaster, speaker, and advocate. And we have been having a conversation around National Adoptee Awareness Month. And before the break, we were talking a lot about infantilization and thinking about how adoptees are really trapped within very limited kind of frameworks for understanding who adoptees are. And one thing you mentioned was, you know, awareness and how we ourselves can start to imagine adoptees outside of, you know, 
children, uh, imagine adoptees as agentic adults. And I think one way that you do that is through the Johnchi Show. So you have a podcast um, that is yourself and two other Korean American adoptees, adults, right? Not children. <laughs> uh, but I think, you know, as we're as we're having this conversation around infantilization and combating that, right, and bringing new frameworks and new ways of thinking about adoptees and adoption, I think this is one example. Um, could you talk a little bit about the show and kind of the impetus behind it? Absolutely. Thank you for asking. And um, just want to quickly shout out my co-hosts, Nathan Nowak and KJ Relke. Um, I don't talk about the show enough, I guess, and my other and the things that I do outside of it. So they're going to be very happy that we're having this conversation. Um, I love our origin story. So when I was learning about the undocumented adoptees, when I was learning about myself and starting this journey, um, I came across the podcast, Dear Asian Americans, which I'm a producer for. And I uh, really loved it, reached out to the first guest, and he put me in touch with the host, Jerry Wan, who invited me to come onto the show to share my story. And as I was getting ready to come on, he said that he had also interviewed two other Korean adoptees, Nathan and KJ. And he's like, I think you all should do a show together about the adoptee experience. And granted, I'm at the very beginning of my journey, and I'm like, eh, okay, we'll see. Um, well, I'll take the meeting for sure. So he puts us in a zoom in August of 2020. It's super awkward. I feel like this is, there's no way this is going to happen. I don't know these two people. That's really strange. And I just, I didn't, I didn't sense the chemistry, but I was like, okay, there's something here. Everybody said, yes, we'll come back. So we'll come back. Glad that I did because in September, after a month of just meetings and meetings and trying to figure out what we were going to do, we landed on a show that was going to be about our experiences and a place where we will try to amplify the voices of other Korean adoptees. So in September, the first week of September, we launched our our show, the John Chi Show. Um, John Chi specifically is a Korean word that means um, to feast. Uh, and we took that to be um, representative of our show because a John Chi is like a party. It's like when people come together and hang out together, they share over a big meal um, and just be in community. And that's what we wanted to do with the show. We wanted to be together, wanted to have a good time, celebrate the different aspects of our heritages that we bring um, and our communities that we bring. And also we wanted to feast at the end. So we do a Korean snack or something um, at the end as a, as a nightcap, I'll say. So we launch in September and we start with just our first, our first three episodes are just about us. And then we have our fourth episode and it is with Korean adoptee, Suchin Pate. And if you don't know, uh, Sujin, she has a a lot of incredible work out there. She's been doing this for a long time. Um, I'm blanking on the title of her book, but we'll make sure to put it in the show notes or put it somewhere. I will get it to you somehow. Um, but she's just incredible. And through Jerry, we were able to get her to come on the show and be our first guest. And probably 10 minutes into the interview, I think we all realized that this show was going to be something way different than what we thought. Like we wanted to amplify voices, but I don't think we realized just how powerful, how different and how I'm frankly incredible. These stories were going to be, these experiences were going to be. And so through her interview, as we were listening and as we were learning and as she was sharing, particularly about her uh, experience with reunion, it was just, it, it, it kind of just, 
I saw like the path that we were going to take with the show. And it really has been that for two years, you know, we're on 110 episodes or something now. And it's been about how do we, how do we give space and how do we make space and, and, and a platform for people like us who probably have no business or no reason to share their story ever, except that, Oh, there's a place out here now for us. And there are other Korean adoptee podcasts that are out there as well, who we um, stand on the shoulders of to and build from the foundation of and, and are glad to be in community with because we just want to be able to add to that tapestry that people have already created. And, you know, that was the impetus of the show was to tell our stories in the context of the wider community. And it became so much more than that. It became every, all of that and more. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Um, and you mentioned Sujin Pate, who is the author of From Orphan to Adoptee. That's what um, it was. Yes. <laughs> U.S. Empire and the Genealogies of Korean Adoption, another very foundational text. I think one thing that is really unique about your show and thinking about, you know, what we talked about earlier, you know, community um, and thinking about adoptees kind of uh, beyond just this one lens of adoption is the fact that Jerry Wan really facilitated you all coming together. And because of that, you all have been uniquely um, connected with Asian American community, Korean American community specifically. And I think as we're having this conversation, of adoptee awareness, that is really key. Because one thing that um, we often hear from transracial adoptees is feeling disconnected um, from the communities of origin. And so for the John Chi Show, I see kind of a, a few dual um, bridge building processes happening, um, not just amongst adoptees, not just Korean adoptees, but also with the Korean American community, which I think is really unique. Yeah, it is absolutely unique, and I'm, I appreciate you bringing that up because I think that's something we don't talk about enough or recognize enough. I mean, I hype Jerry up all the time uh, because he's been foundational in my personal journey, but truly, I think that is something that is a little bit different about our show. While it is adoptee-led and adoptee-focused and really adoptee-created, like he took the time and, and said, let's do this. And for him, a non-adopted person to want to do to up, uplift and elevate our voices in that way and give us a platform to do that, I think is it's not unheard of, but it's definitely rare. I think it's it's less rare now, but even two years ago, I think it was a rare thing to see. And the fact that he took that chance on us, you know, we could have been terrible. Like I, we, our first meeting, I was like, I don't know if we're gonna be able to do this. Like we could have been horrible, but he at least took that chance. And I cannot you know, thank him enough for doing so because it really also helped to open my eyes to what it means to be in solidarity with another community, even though I'm part of the Korean American community. Like mm -hmm. at that time, I was still, but at that time I was still trying to find my way in and I still didn't feel like I was accepted. I did, didn't even still really accept myself as Korean American. Like I'm not enough of that. Like I, I can't fit in here. And for Jerry to take that chance on all of us and then to continue to help us see this through, help us build that community, watch him grow and understand and learn more about the adoptee experience and, you know, the different facets of our community has been a real pleasure and a real treat. And I think something that we can take for granted, because at the end of the day, I think I, I don't remember if I talked about this at the top, but 
we have to, uh, at the end of the day, we have conversations in our community. Generally, the audiences are their adoptees, which mm -hmm. is great because we need adoptees need to be able to hear our own stories and voices to see that reflected. We need that reflection. However, when we talk, we've been talking about processes and, and systemic change. The way that we do that is by reaching people outside of our community who are in positions to make that happen. And so Jerry, by him doing that, like he, by him taking that chance on us, he's allowing us to do that. And that's what we need. We need more people to take chances on us. We need more people to see and hear our voices, be willing to sit in that conversation so we can start to affect those changes at the systemic level. And we're only going to be able to do that if we get outside of our community and push those walls, push those boundaries as far out as we can. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I'm just so happy that you've been able to do that with the John Chi show. I mean, creating a platform where people can can learn, but also using your platform in order to reach proactively reach out to other communities as well and not just stay within kind of the adoptee bubble, because you're absolutely right. We need both. Right. We need to build that community amongst one another. But then we also need to build those coalitions outside mm -hmm. um, with other groups as well. Um, and so I really see that through the John Chi show, but also I through all of the work that you do. So I'm thinking about advocacy with Adoptee Citizenship Act and other organizations, not just adoptee specific, but also some of the various speaking engagements that you do as well that are building those connections, but also building awareness across a variety of issues. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's a privilege. It's a privilege to have that opportunity. And I do that so that hopefully I can put other people who maybe won't receive that opportunity into those positions that I've received. Because if I'm not paying it forward, you know, we're not moving forward. Not that I'm the, only, the person, the linchpin that makes us move forward, but just anecdotally, like if I can't share in those opportunities, if I can't help lift other people up, as well as myself, then, you know, we move slower, we move at a slower pace. So why not find the way to get us where we want to go and do it together? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, with reclaiming and reframing November as National Adoptee Awareness Month, what is something this month that you're really proud of as an adoptee? Something that I'm really proud of is seeing all of the new faces who are sharing, introducing themselves, creating content this month that maybe haven't leading up this year or maybe weren't here last year in November. I think that's something that I'm super, I'm not proud for myself. I'm proud for us. It's <laughs> such it's such an uplifting and, and life-giving thing to see new faces, to see people say, this is the first time I've shared here and I don't know how much I'm going to share, but this is what I have for today and I hope that's okay because it is okay. And it gives me so much joy to see new folks enter the community and to see the community really wrap their arms around them and, and welcome them in. I think that's been the thing that I've been most proud of and most excited about this month um, and excited to see that continue. Well, I love it. Well, Patrick, thanks so much for hanging out with us this morning. It was such a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Sana. I appreciate it. 
Thank you again to Patrick Armstrong for being with us this morning and helping us recenter National Adoption Month to focus on the people, not just the process of adoption, but instead, in this case, focus on the experiences and the voices of adoptees. For today's positive quote, I want to leave you with this. The truth is family is what we make it. And I love this truth because certainly during this time of year, the holidays, we are around a lot of family or sometimes it can bring up a lot of wounds as it relates to our family. But in truth, family is what we make it. And we have the opportunity to make new family traditions, to invest in the different types of family that we have and to even break free from the traumas that maybe have been passed down through our families. Well, this has been Let's Grab Coffee here on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana and I'm here every Monday morning. In case you missed any of today's conversation, you can always listen to the replay on WYXR.org or subscribe to Let's Grab Coffee in podcast format available wherever you listen to podcasts. I can't wait to be back with you next Monday morning.